This is our final message in 2 Thessalonians 2. Uh, We will certainly have three left to accomplish, but um, there will be a a pretty significant focus shift heading to next week. This week, we are still focusing upon that which Paul has uh, already been saying for some time uh, as he's teached on end times events and the dynamics of, of belief and and the dynamics of, of the church and, and of the Antichrist and what will be happening in these last days and the mass falling away and the mass deception and the mass deceit. And, and yet we are saved from the wrath that is to come. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And, and uh, the restrainer is, is actively at work right now restraining the um, evil in this world, the, the mystery of iniquity, which is already working. And it will continue to work until the restrainer is taken out of the way. We've talked about all of these concepts. We focused in specifically, as the text did, on the Antichrist. A man unlike any man the world has ever seen. A man of evil. A man of rebellion. A man of deceit. Empowered by Satan himself. The time of tribulation being the outpouring of God's wrath upon this world unlike any in the history of mankind. The Scriptures liken the last days to the days of Noah in that people are eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and it will be a time where people are caught unawares by the day of the Lord which comes. Also a time of deep apostasy leading into utter destruction and our capacity to understand these events as we've mentioned already is limited simply because our human minds have no frame of reference by which to understand the kind of destruction and the kind of fear and outpouring of wrath on that day. But remember at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul said these words. He said in verses 1 and 2, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. So remember that this is intended to be an epistle of comfort. And this chapter 2 as we've been studying it is intended to bring about in our hearts a level of comfort. Paul's purpose was to comfort the Thessalonian believers with respect to these end times. He did not want them to think the day of Christ was already at hand. And he knew that the day of Christ was not at hand. In other words, right there, because Antichrist had not yet been revealed. He reminded them that the restraining force of the Holy Spirit must first be removed. A statement which, when combined with his message in 1 Thessalonians, leads us strongly to believe that the church will be taken out of the world before these events take place. In fact, Paul taught in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 that uh, one of the things that we do is wait for his Son, God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So Paul taught that God has delivered us from, from his wrath. And then he would go on to say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, that God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And m- most of you uh, remember this as we went through 1 Thessalonians, and, and yet we are recalled to these realities that it is the same context within which Paul speaks in both of these epistles to the, second th- uh, to the Thessalonian believers that God has not 
counted us as a part of those who should incur his wrath in any context. And before we jump into the text this evening, verses 13 through 17 of 2 Thessalonians 2, let's take just a few minutes to to orient our mindset here. We need to be thinking this evening in contrasts, in opposites, black versus white, Light versus darkness, up versus down, knowledge versus ignorance, redeemed versus enslaved, saved versus damned. Paul is drawing a dynamic contrast in the final verses of Second Thessalonians 2 this evening. And the contrast is between the unbelievers who are damned to the wrath of God and an eternity of, of God's wrath and believers who are not like them. You are not like the rest of the world. Not by any power of your own. Not by any merit of your own. You have been lifted out of this world. A world hurtling into its own damnation and have been placed into the family of the blessed. Not through any efficacious effort or personal ability of your own, but by the grace of God through Christ Jesus our Lord, you have been purchased out of your sin and placed into the righteousness of Christ. Now, this is not a pride thing. This is a position thing. But hear me in this. You are not of this world. You have been redeemed from out of this world. And you face an entirely different fate than does this world. And we must know this. We must believe this. Not in pride, but in humble thanksgiving, not in order to rejoice and hold it over the lost, but in order to uh, desire and compel the lost to join us in our deliverance and in order to live a life of peace. See, God does not want us to live in constant fear and anxiety of the unknown that is to come. God does not want us to live constantly uptight over what's going on in the world around us. That can be a tough one. I read the news and sometimes I'm reading the news at night and my wife just looks at me and says, stop that. You're not going to be able to sleep. You're going to give yourself an ulcer. You're just going to get frustrated. Uh, just, just, just stop reading the news. Read, read something else. Read a book. Read fiction. Do something, but stop reading the news because you read the news. And especially in today's news, you can't, op- you can't open a newspaper. You can't get onto a website without seeing signs of the times. But... The things of the end times are not intended by God to cause believers to become anxious and unsettled. Because that part's taken care of. You know, there's enough unsettling things in this world. Will you wake up in the morning and, and children in this room, you're, you're uh, maybe not as, as um, accustomed to this or, or maybe you, you don't feel as much of that unsettledness as as your your parents and adults when there's more responsibilities uh, heaped on uh, on us as adults but but there's there's enough to <laughs> to be concerned with every day that we don't need to be unsettled about that which is already settled in heaven we don't need to be unsettled about our uh, about the days to come for us as believers and so this is the big difference that Paul is going to highlight 
And let's go ahead and read here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 13 and we'll go to, verse, uh, to the end of the chapter, verse 17, and then we'll walk through it together. Paul says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of glory of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or by our, or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Verse 13 begins with a definitive contrast to the previous context. Paul has been talking about Antichrist, about the wrath of God upon him, about the destruction of what he calls in verse 12, the damned. And now he gives that fantastic conjunction. One of the most encouraging conjunctions in all the Bible, but all of this terrible stuff about uh, about destruction and damnation and the wrath of God upon the unbelieving world. And then Paul says, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you. The Greek word bound here is literally the word obligated or indebted. Paul felt the deepest of compulsions to be regularly thankful to God. Literally, Paul looks at them and he says that God is doing such a work in these Thessalonian believers, that God is doing such fantastic things that I feel a deep-seated obligation to be constantly in thanksgiving to God for them because of all that God is doing in them. In contrast to the damned who believe not the truth, these in the Thessalonian church are what Paul says, what Paul calls the beloved of the Lord. And Paul tells them that he is deeply thankful to God for them because God has from the beginning chosen them to salvation. Now it was not but uh, two months ago in 1 Samuel that we spent a considerable amount of time on a Sunday morning speaking about the doctrine of election, what it means, what it doesn't. I also parked on the topic in 1 Thessalonians. We talked about election and what it means and what it doesn't. And I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but for the sake of perhaps someone listening online who didn't go through my first Samuel series or who didn't go through my first Thessalonian series, I'm not going to explain it this time, but let me just uh, delineate what we mean and remind you what we mean when we say election. Now, uh, in a minute, you're going to find that this doesn't even fully um, apply here, but, but we'll get there. So a proper understanding of the doctrine of election states that God has chosen a person or a group for a specific purpose within the scope of His sovereign will. This election is presented in Scripture as timeless, that from before the beginning of history, God's purposes were established. This election is presented as definitive, that there is nothing that can frustrate the purposes of God in this regard. But what the Bible does not do in any scriptural context is link the doctrine of election with the doctrine of salvation redemption from sin and eternity in heaven. In other words, election does not ever in Scripture definitively state 
that it has to do with your salvation, that you are elect unto salvation. The church is elect. Israel is elect. There were uh, many Old Testament uses of elect, the concept of election. But election never is never definitively linked in Scripture to salvation. In other words, when God speaks of being elect, the election is presented not as a destination, but as a purpose. Now, I just want to leave that there, and um, we'll let that rest. And I remind you that if you're curious about it, you want to review it, um, it was in 1 Samuel 8, verses 19 through 22, that message that I preached on election, and then also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, I preached on election. Now, I've said all of that, and as I've done so, please take note of the fact here that in, in technical terms, we cannot take this passage of Scripture and impose upon it the doctrine of election. Say, well, Pastor, why'd you go through all that? Well, because it talks about being chosen here, right? And so there could be some confusion. But the word that's always used in Scripture to speak about the doctrine of election is the Greek word eklektos, which uh, is the word by which we get um, the word elect. It means to select, and it forms the basis. But here, the Greek word is hyreomai which means to prefer or to take for oneself. And as we, if you were to trace this word through the scripture, what you would find is that in the majority of cases, it's speaking about preferring one thing over another thing. That if you were weighing options, you would prefer one over another. I was talking to Sophia after our dinner on the grounds today, and we were talking about chocolate. And uh, Sophia informed me that um, when it comes to sweet things, if it's not chocolate, it's not worth it. And she was specifically, she even told me that if you had a huge vat of Skittles or one chocolate M&M and she had to choose between an entire vat of Skittles or just one chocolate M&M, she would choose the chocolate M&M. She would hyreomai the M&M over the Skittles. So it's not necessarily this idea of, of the, the, the focus of this word is not necessarily the idea of, of the, the selection, but it's the idea of the preference. It's the idea of the preferring of one thing above another. Having the choice of two options and taking one. Now, when we understand the word to mean this, when we view this in the context of the damnation of the unbeliever and recognize that it stands apart from the doctrine of election, we can begin to see clearly what Paul is trying to tell us here. Paul is not saying that God has elected us unto eternal redemption from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. When we think of salvation, which is what it says here, that, that he has from the beginning chosen us to salvation, that's what we would naturally think of, is that idea that he's chosen us to be saved from our sin. But salvation in the scripture doesn't always speak of eternal salvation. It doesn't always speak of salvation from the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin. Now, it might lead to that, but there are different contexts in which this word salvation is used. So think with me here for a minute. Put your thinking caps on and walk through this with me. The word means to prefer, to choose one option above another. The context of the passage is assurance to the reader with respect to their relationship to the day of the Lord. 
that the day of the Lord is not at hand and that I believe, and, and as we've walked through it, we've, we've um, set a pretty good precedent to say that Paul is telling them that the day of the Lord is not for them. That they will not be under the wrath of God on that day or even take part in that day in the wrath aspect. Uh, we know that we will come with Him on that day. So the word means to prefer. The context is assurance and comfort. The contrast is between the unbeliever and those that Paul calls in this verse the beloved of the Lord. The believer, on the other hand, whereas the unbeliever will incur the wrath of God, the believer will be saved. Well, if we were going to look at at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and say, the unbeliever is going to incur the wrath of God, what would be the context of that wrath? It would be the day of the Lord, right? It wouldn't necessarily, maybe by extension, but it wouldn't inherently be the wrath of the lake of fire, the wrath of hell. It would be the wrath of the day of the Lord. The day that Jesus Christ returns and He destroys the unbelieving world. And so if that is the wrath that is being spoken of, and that is within the context of the unbeliever, and then Paul makes an immediate contrast with a believer being saved and being chosen to be saved, and that word chosen has to do with preference, not with selection, then we come to a conclusion here that God is speaking and that Paul is speaking here inherently of being saved from the day of wrath. Remember we talked in... We went through those verses just a few minutes ago in 1 Thessalonians that God has not appointed us to wrath and that God has saved us from the day of wrath. Well, here, within the context of the day of the Lord, it is the most contextually safe, contextually accurate, grammatically and linguistically accurate, and logical conclusion to come to that the salvation that we have been chosen to from the beginning of the world is salvation from the wrath of the day of the Lord. May I kind of reword this verse in my own way for clarity? I believe this is what Paul is saying. Those who have become the beloved of the Lord through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth have been preferred by God above the world unto salvation. So it's not talking about you having been chosen from the beginning of the world to be saved from your sin, but rather the church having been chosen from the beginning of the world to be saved from the wrath of the day of the Lord. An entirely different context, but one that is far more accurate to what Paul has been saying. And don't miss out on this cause and effect relationship. Don't miss out on the difference between the cause of our position and the result of our position. Just as we would understand it with the doctrine of election or with the doctrine of of predestination, so too we would understand it here. That those who are in Christ will be spared from the wrath of God when it comes upon this world. We have been preferred by God as those that love Him not at the expense of the rest of the world, but rather we've been preferred by God over the world that hates Him. We are the preferred. We are those that do not hate Him. We are those, therefore, that will be saved from His wrath. The result of our position as the beloved of the Father is that we are the beloved of the Lord unto 
salvation from the wrath of the day of the Lord. What is the cause of this salvation then? This salvation, not, the, not that, um, that this, our salvation is from the day of the Lord, but, but what is it that brings us to the place where we have received this salvation? And that's what Paul goes on to say. I'm going to read verse 13 again for context and into verse 14. It says this, We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says that we have received, we have been chosen unto this salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I wish we could diagram this this evening. I should have just diagrammed it. Because the prepositions here are everything. We can trace this beautifully crafted and worded sentence through the the grammar here that we have been saved from the day of the Lord through sanctification of the Spirit. We talked about that last week, being set apart by the Spirit and dwelled by the Holy Spirit of God and believing on the truth. Those two would comprise eternal salvation through belief, right? And whereunto, or literally unto which, He called you. This sanctification of the Spirit, this belief of the truth has called you. You have been called unto sanctification of the Spirit. You have been called unto belief of the truth. And what is it that called you unto this? The Gospel. The Gospel, and and let me just delineate this here, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is the call of God which calls us unto belief in the truth and sanctification of the Holy Spirit, which positions you to be part of the beloved of the Lord, who have been chosen unto salvation from the wrath that is to come. That's what these two verses are saying. May I say it again? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the call of God, which calls us unto belief in the truth and sanctification of the Spirit, which positions you to be a part of the beloved of the Lord, who have been chosen unto salvation from the wrath that is to come. So basically, if we took verses 13 and 14 and we kind of reversed them, that's basically what I did here. Paul started at the end result, which is our salvation from the wrath and the day of the Lord, and he worked his way all the way back to where that salvation came from, even to the very cause, which was faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There was a day where you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God convicted you and you recognized that the gospel is true. And as you recognized that the gospel is true, you submitted yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the moment you submitted yourself to the gospel by believing through faith, you were sanctified by the Spirit of God. You were marked as a child of God. You were set aside. And the moment that you were set aside by the Holy Spirit of God which is in you through belief in the truth which you received uh, as you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you became one of the Lord's beloved. 
And ladies and gentlemen, everyone who is beloved of the Lord has been chosen from the very beginning of time since before time was created to be saved from the wrath of God. Isn't that neat? That's neat. I, this stuff just excites me. So it's not that you have been chosen so you're saved from the wrath to come, so you heard the gospel, so you believed the gospel, so you were sanctified of the Spirit. It's that you heard the gospel and you believed the gospel, so you were sanctified by the Spirit, so you became the beloved of the Lord, so you became the preferred or you became the chosen of God, so you are saved from the wrath that is to come. And all of this is that Paul, uh, is so that Paul might comfort your heart with the blessed reality that yes, though we know this stuff and that we see this stuff happening and that we know it is on the horizon and that there is an Antichrist coming and that the world will fall into apostasy and that God's wrath will be poured out on this world, you're not a part of this world. You're not. You're not a part of it. Paul continues in verses 15 to 17 with the the therefore. He says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or by epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, establish you in every good word and work. I heard it said, and and I like it. I like the phrase. The person said, when you see a therefore in the Scriptures, it's a call to find out what it's there for. It's a conclusion, right? It is a conclusion to a thought. So Paul has given us all these thoughts. The day of the Lord is not at hand. Antichrist has not yet appeared. The Antichrist is an evil, terrible, awful man. But uh, the mystery of iniquity is already working, but it can't be released until the restrainer is removed. Then the unbelieving world will be thrown into a deep mass deception at the hand of this wicked Antichrist, and they're all damned and they'll all be judged by the Lord. Therefore, oh, 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 I missed and you are not a part of that because you are the the beloved of the Lord and you have been chosen not to be incurred by wrath, but rather to have salvation of the Lord. Therefore, and there's several applications here for two, two specific commands and then two thoughts on top of that. He says, first, stand fast. Therefore, stand fast. The word indicates resolve, intent, determination, Greek word stako, to be stationary, stand fast. We find this word several times in the Scripture. In fact, it's used eight times in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 16.13, we're supposed to stand fast in the faith. In Galatians 5.1, we're supposed to stand fast in liberty. In Philippians 1.27, we're said to stand fast in one spirit. Philippians 4.1, we're said to stand fast in the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 3.8, we're said to also stand fast in the Lord. Literally, this word is used more often than not in the Scriptures to say, dig in your heels, roll up your sleeves, prepare to stand upon the truth of the doctrines of the Word of God. And as Paul exhorts us that we are saved from the wrath, that we are not incurring the wrath of of God uh, that this world will incur. He first tells us you need to therefore stand fast. Stand fast in that which God has taught. Stand fast 
in the doctrines which you've learned. But second, he says, hold the traditions. Hold the traditions taught through word or epistle. Literally retain the ordinances, whether by, by specific word of mouth from Paul or by an epistle which he wrote. He said, hold down the traditions which have been passed down. Now, this one is, is interesting. We might say very important for we who are part of the 21st century church to understand. See, the word tradition or ordinances is used 13 times in the New Testament. It's used three times in the book of Matthew, all three times in Matthew 15, speaking of the Jewish law. It's also used six times in Mark 7, speaking of the Jewish law. It's used in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, speaking of two specific traditions of the church, head coverings and the Lord's table. It's used in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, as Paul described his previous relationship to the Jewish law. And it's used in Colossians 2, verse 8, to warn us against the traditions of men and not following the traditions of men, but rather following the doctrine of Christ. And as we consider this list of the ways in which it is used, we start to think about the church that's around us. You know, we are part of what we might call the post-tradition church. One of the main reasons we find ourselves here today is because Christians and pseudo-Christians alike have muddied the water between what are traditions of men and what we would call the ordinances or traditions of Scripture. When traditions which have no support in Scripture are elevated to dogma, Christian law and expectation, well, then we have a problem. And so the people grow up in all of these traditions and all of these expectations and, and the churches churches that they're in say, if you don't meet these things, then you're not a good Christian. And then they grow up one day and they read their Bible and they find out that none of this stuff is said in the Bible. And so the church, uh, the young people that are now no longer young people rebel against the traditions of the church in years gone by. And rebelling against the man-made traditions is not a bad thing. But the problem is we tend to be pendulum swingers as humans. And where our fathers and our mothers swung the pendulum one way, when we find error uh, on the extremity of that pendulum, we tend to swing all the way to the other end, which also tends to be error as well. And where God typically wants us, and I tell people this quite often, I say if you see two extremes in, in Christian circles, law versus grace, right? Um, or... Um, God's holiness versus God's love or God's sovereignty versus man's free will. When you see these extremes in Christianity, typically speaking, if you want to find the right place, look right about to the middle and you'll find the place where God's word is and you'll find the place where God wants us. We at Legacy Baptist Church believe in the sovereignty of God, 100% sovereign, but we also recognize the man's, man's role, the, the role of free will. We, we find ourselves right in the middle between the two points. We at Legacy Baptist Church recognize the grace of God and that all things are lawful, but we also see that all things are not expedient. And so we don't go towards legalism, but we also want to be careful not to go towards license. And we find ourselves right about in the middle. And that is, I personally believe, where God wants us. But the post 
tradition Christian church has found itself in this age throwing out the baby with the bathwater as the expression goes. They haven't just thrown out the traditions that have been elevated to, to dogmatic law that were not supposed to be there. The, some of the uh, legalistic traditions of, of uh, places to go and music to listen to and, and things to wear. Some of the things that had been in the former generation elevated to, to status of, of law have been, and rightfully so, put in their place. But you know what else the church has thrown out with it? Some of those important traditions that the Bible does teach. Things like going to church. Things like the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper being corporate ordinances for the church to observe. We see mentioned on this list here the Lord's table. Also head coverings. And we don't dogmatically uh, approach the head coverings in the way the, the Old Testament or the New Testament church did, the early church did. But we, we do appropriate the principle of submission. And that's what, where we have come to in that, where we've settled on that issue. But these things have been yielded as well. In our zeal to throw out the false traditions or the traditions of men that Colossians 2.8 warns us about, we have as a church also thrown out many of the biblical traditions. And Paul tells them here, stand fast and hold the traditions, the ordinances which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Paul says, don't be so hasty to yield the ordinances, the traditions of the church which have been taught to you. Your salvation does not depend upon church ordinances. And any church that would teach that is already out of, out of focus. But they are indeed worth holding on to. So he says, stand fast and hold the traditions that have been taught. Now that's it for the commands. But Paul is not quite finished yet. He prays that these men and women would find themselves through his writing in a place of hope, in a place of comfort and security in Christ. He says in verse 16, Now our Lord Jesus himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. And then verse 17, Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work. He says, because we serve a God that has already loved us and has already given us eternal life, eternal everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, there are some important things that you need to remember. See, there's so much debate about the nature and the timing of end times events. Thoughts about these events, theories abound. Good, godly men disagree on timing all of those issues. Some people are, are a little bit more comfortable setting a general time range. Other people say, don't even go there. Some people say, yep, yep, it's definitively a, a pre-tribulation um, rapture. Others say, you know, maybe it's somewhere around the mid-tribulation. Am I confident in, in the position that we stand on in the church? Absolutely. Uh, do I ever feel guilty that I'm not pressing you more to, to think that this is without a doubt the last age of the church? No, I've never felt guilt. 
I believe a revival still could come. I don't know when the day of the Lord has come. I do know that every generation of the church, as I read in history, there hasn't been a generation of the church that I've read that has not thought their generation was the generation that Christ would come. So far be it for me to say this is not going to be. Far be it for me to say it is. I don't know. I see the signs of the times around me. But if one day I stand before my Savior Jesus Christ and His 1 Corinthians 13 tells me I know even as I am known, I stand redeemed gazing into the loving eyes of my eternal Savior and I know on that day that I was not completely correct on my assessment of end times events, you know, that's okay. Regardless of the elements of ambiguity surrounding the events of the last days, do you know what is not ambiguous? What's not ambiguous is our everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. That we will one day be with Christ. That we will be saved from the wrath that is to come. These things are unambiguous. And regardless of the nuances of end times events, I know these things to be sure. But let me just say this as well. Paul makes it abundantly clear here that the reality of our everlasting consolation, of our home in heaven one day, of our good hope in Christ, sourced in the grace of God, should not just comfort us about then. It should not just comfort me about the end times. It should not just comfort me about my eternity. It should comfort me about now. That my now is in as good of hands as my tomorrow. Paul says, in light of what you know about the falling away and an antichrist to come and the removal of the restrainer and the deceit of them that perish, be comforted today because you're not among them that perish. You have obeyed the truth. Those days are not for you, nor is it for you to spend your days shaken or troubled in mind or in spirit. What should we do instead? Well, he says at the end of verse 17, Establish you in every good word and work. In the times that my wife has been pregnant, it has always amused me to sit back and listen to the pregnant woman stories. One of the most consistent among those pregnant woman stories, especially as that special day draws nearer, is that keep yourself busy story, right? The as it gets closer, my goal, many ladies say, is just I keep myself busy. I'm not thinking about it and it'll come when it comes. It'll happen when it happens. Kind of uh, akin to that old adage, a watched pot never boils, right? The more you think about something, the, the longer it's going to seem, the harder it's going to seem. If you can take your mind off of something, if you can be busy about, about some other things, then you, you're not going to spend your time thinking about the pain, fretting about things, worrying. You, you, you be prepared, but you don't need to keep your mind on it. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here. That instead of going up and selling all your possessions and sitting up on a mountain and just staring up at the sky until Jesus comes, because we're convinced He is coming soon, instead of fretting about what's going to happen when Jesus returns, let's just be busy about the work that He's called us to today. Now, it's good for us. It's right for us to know about the end times. It is a motivation for us to learn about the end times. But the idea here is to be busy doing good works and in good words. 
position yourself in every word you speak, in every work you do, to be pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ, just keep on keeping on until the day that He returns. The Christian life cannot be rung up on a credit card. In the life to come, God will not take my good intentions or my copious study as credit for the work that He asked me to do in this life. And when my concerns over the things to come overrides, confuses, frustrates, or demotivates my efforts for Christ today, it's time to reassess our priorities. And instead of spending our time dwelling on that which is to come, now we know it's coming, but the reason why God tells us it's coming is so that we can establish ourselves in good words and good works, so that we can be busy doing today. And the idea is this, as we close. God is good. God loves you. God has redeemed you from the very darkest corners of your own sinful heart. God has never failed any man that has come to Him. In fact, God has never failed at all. God does not slumber. God does not sleep. You have received everlasting consolation and good hope found in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. You are intended to live free to love the Lord with all of your heart, to serve Him with all of your might. You are saved from the wrath that is to come. You're not encumbered by the wrath of, or by the, by the sting or by the threat of wrath. And so you are free. The burden is lifted to simply serve God, to love God, to take pleasure in God, to rest in God, to enjoy that which God has given to you in this life. And that's the message that this chapter is intended to to give us. That God would help us to live in the grace which He has purchased for us at the cost of His only begotten Son. Let's pray together.